This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Welcome to Coffeehouse Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Isabel Hardman and I'm joined by Katie Balls and James Forsyth. Well, it's the day after the budget and as is always the case, the details are coming out and some of the complaints are coming out as well. Katie, how has it landed uh, in the Conservative Party? I think it's been a mixed reaction, um, both in terms of the Conservative Party and also the reception in the media, which is ultimately that. There isn't any outcry. There's not any outrage, really, or you know, mass rows breaking out about this budget. There is a discomfort amongst Tory MPs about the fact that, despite the Chancellor constantly saying he loves low tax, the tax burden is going up to its highest point since the 1950s. And how do you reconcile that? I think, as James has written in this week's magazine, the fact that there is a tax cut, or more than one, but there is a substantial tax cut in terms of the taper rate on universal credit, has offered a hint of the direction, and it was interesting when Rishi Sunak addressed Tory MPs at the 1922 committee last night he went further than he did in his comments in the chamber saying that ultimately the budget sets out is a clear and unambiguous intent uh, from the government now to begin the process of reducing taxes or at least that's the intent of Rishi Sunak and also talking about how every marginal pound from now on should be put into lowering taxes not more spending so I think it's quite clear that the chancellor wants to be talking about how this is almost as big as it gets from now on it's about cutting taxes but ultimately you don't have to look really around at all to find lots of warnings about the fact that more spending is going to be needed you've got the IFS saying that even the national insurance rise for example won't be enough to fund the NHS in the medium term you could do more taxes and then you have the push from number 10 not in many ways Boris Johnson got quite a lot of what he wanted from yesterday's budget in terms of spending is that really about to go away so I think there is some relief in the Tory party at the fact there is such a focus on tax cutting but the actions quite right now don't really suggest that. James, what are the potential flashpoints over the next few weeks? There's the air passenger duty policy, for instance, which Rishi Sunak has had to defend today uh, ahead of COP, uh, which starts in a few days. Are there other issues that you think are going to, to run and run from this budget? I think the big issue that will run and run from it, as Katie said, is this question about the size of a state, the fact that, you know, the tax burden is as high as it's been since kind of at the administration and how quickly and how soon the Tory party can get that down and whether it has the determination to do so, whether it's prepared to take the tough decisions necessary. I think the other big question is, is inflation? We see that the OBR said, you know, that they predict that inflation peaks at 4.4% next summer. But uh, when they were talking about their forecast, they said, look, we closed the forecast early. So we hadn't taken into account the recent spike in energy prices. So we think inflation may well end up being closer to 5% than that. Obviously, if inflation goes up, that is going to squeeze people's wages further. And it's going to increase the cost of servicing the government's debt. So I think that is probably the biggest risk to the economy right now. Moving on, we have another dispute with France over fishing. Katie, just explain what has been happening in the past 24 hours. Yes, yeah, so... 
this is ultimately uh, comments from the French EU affairs minister have uh, created some headlines today, which is ultimately France will now use the language of force in escalation of row over post-Brexit fishing rights. And this comes after the French Maritime Police seized a British trawler found in its territorial waters, um, which didn't have the license that you required. And clearly we've we know that tensions between the UK and France have been getting worse. It is not when you hear, I think, the new foreign secretary talking about the priorities. I mean, she didn't mention um, Europe once Liz Truss, that is, when she spoke at conference for her speech. But I think it's obviously particularly difficult when it comes to France, close neighbours, yet on various things keep clashing. And I think it's hard to see right now where this lands in a diplomatic way. James, you've written previously about the need for both sides to well, basically grow up. I think you were a little bit more polite than that. But it doesn't look as though Britain or France are learning to uh, mature into a a new post-Brexit relationship at the moment, are they? It still feels very much like, uh, you know, the first Christmas after a divorce. I mean, it is remarkable. I think we are looking at a major diplomatic dispute and further tensions between France and the UK over the fate of a few dozen fishing vessels. And I mean, the problem is that both sides' domestic politics pushes them into escalation. Emmanuel Macron wants to get re-elected next year. He is going to choose to push hard on this, to stir this pot. You look at Clement Bone's statement that you referred to earlier. It, it was hardly very diplomatic to say, but basically the only language the British understand is force. And at the same time, you then had a quite punchy statement from the UK government in response. And I mean, you can easily see how this gets worse and the next factor you've got going behind this is France takes over the EU presidency in January at a time when the fallout from the row over the Northern Ireland Protocol could be at its height. I think that I mean I think if you think Anglo-French relations are bad today which they undoubtedly are I don't think we have plumbed the bottom yet and I think the big question is you know who is able to kind of get the two sides to reset. It's obviously not healthy for the two major defence powers in Europe to be in such an awful place in terms of their bilateral relations at a time when Vladimir Putin feels emboldened by rising energy prices. And so I think this is a very difficult situation. I think in, in this particular instance, I think the French are choosing to escalate and threatening a series of retaliatory measures that seem to me relatively disproportionate to the problem. I mean, the the problem essentially is that lots of these smaller French boats that fish off Jersey, the EU-UK free trade agreement requires them to be able to prove that they have fished there in the past to be granted a licence. These smaller boats can't prove that in lots of cases because um, now the argument comes that that some people on the British side say, well, they can't prove it because they didn't do it. Other people say, well, they can't prove it just because these are small boats and so we don't have the kind of GPS technology that would enable them to prove it. But I do think that both sides need to step back from a situation where the fate of fishing licences for a few dozen vessels is, is going to cause such damage to relations. Katie, finally, we've also got some more travel news, not the uh, the scrapping of air passenger duty, but the end of the red list. This is good news or is it bad news given cases are still rising? Well, ultimately, the red list, I think, by as it developed, became more about variants than necessarily cases. Of course, if a country had a very high case rate, it was one factor in considering it. But the countries that have stuck on that list for the longest, having ones where there have been variants of concern. 
And I think that if you look at the announcement today, so all countries to remove from the travel list, meaning no hotel quarantine for UK arrivals. Now, quite a few have been taken off recently anyway. They've been substantially reduced. For example, South Africa, which is one country where if you think back to Christmas last year, it started to be a real variant of concern. That has already been taken off. So new countries being taken off will be Colombia, the Dominican Republic, Ecuador, Peru, Venezuela. There's obviously a question here, which is, Listening to the budget yesterday and what Rishi Sunak was saying, it did really feel as though the Chancellor does not uh, see COVID as a big factor in the decisions right now. It's almost something that has happened. And I think that you can see in the fact that we're not in plan B, that the government does not want to go backwards. I think the end of the red list today all suggests that they even want to go further than they currently are. So I think we'll hear some warnings over this. But ultimately, I do think if you look at where we were last week, where lots of warnings again, cases going up. Now, cases still aren't in a great place, but they're not climbing in the way that I think some thought they would following on from last week. And it's encouraging the government, I think, to argue that we are in a different stage of the pandemic, and ultimately to kind of stick to their guns on a lot of this stuff. And I think this is a further sign of that. I think that Katie is right. I mean, at the end of last week, the government was getting nervous about where the numbers were going what might be required. I think the fact that the numbers have trended down a bit has backed those who thought that kind of half-term would act as a kind of natural firebreak. And also that, that people's behaviour is to an extent self-regulating, that when people hear that cases are high, they cut down on their social contacts, they're less likely to go to a party, and all of those things. I still think the, the biggest single question about this winter, which we don't yet know the answer to, is how COVID and flu interact. You know, if you get a bad flu season, then I think it will be harder to deal with that. But I think you should still be able to avoid really onerous restrictions, given how high the levels of vaccination are in the population. I think if you can get the booster programme sorted out, if you can get it giving more doses to those over 50, I mean, that would be a good thing. I also think the government should look quite rapidly at moving to boosting the entire population. I I don't see what harm there is in offering people in their 40s, 30s and 20s an extra shot if they want one. Given that the great international effort to vaccinate the world is sadly not progressing at at the rate that it should do, I think the kind of case for expanding eligibility for the booster shots is relatively strong. Thank you, James. Thank you, Katie. And thank you for listening.